You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken, conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Werewolfism for profit and pleasure. Get excited! The night belongs to your goddess, Hecate, and she will guide you. The moon is new and the stars are nothing more than candles in a sea of darkness. But you know your way through the graveyard. You've been here many times before. Your feet could find their way amongst these cluttered tombstones and grave mounds in your sleep. Sometimes they have. You have woken many a night to find yourself lying amongst these paths, memory robbed from you by too much drink or too potent a spell. Many years ago, before your husband cast you aside, when you were still a young girl, your mother warned you about your place in this world. This is not a world for girls like you, she had said with a stern look at your berry-stained hands. Girls like you think too much, you want too much, and this world will take everything from you. She'd spat on the floor as she'd said it to ward off evil. I will give you the gift my mother gave me, and her mother gave her before her. I will give you the knowledge that you need to survive in this place, but you must keep it secret. What she taught you was a secret knowledge. What herbs could cure and which could poison? Which spells could make a man turn from his mistress and which would make a baby grow or die in a womb? You have carried them with you all these years, even when your husband turned from you and you doubted your magic. When your hands couldn't prevent a death, couldn't save a child, In those dark days, you prayed to your goddess and she led you to the graveyard. She showed you the wisdom of living without a faithless man, of saving your magic for those who deserved it. You have lived many lifetimes since then. You have cast off your skin and wandered the forests and streets as a wolf. You have run with the packs of wild dogs amongst the gravestones. You've been many things to many people, but you have always been a witch. And tonight, you will honor your goddess. 
You hear the beast before you see it. Its eyes glow with a warning, bright embers in a shadowy landscape. It is otherworldly and huge, much bigger than the wolves and dogs that feast on the bodies buried in the unquiet earth. You have only ever seen a wolf like this before once. It was the night you sought refuge here in the graveyard for the first time. The night you thought you would die from the shame and heartbreak of what your husband had done. You smile at the wolf. You would know those eyes anywhere. They herald the approach of your goddess. She has arrived. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, full disclosure, this is not the seasonal episode I set out to write. Whoops. Oopsie. How often does this happen? It definitely happened a couple times. I mean, with Mithras. Let's let's look back on Mithras. Oh, Mithras. <laughs> we could not have foreseen the emperor pee drinking. We could not. Or the mushrooms. So when I started the research into ancient werewolves of Greece and Rome, because that's what the topic is, I was pretty sure that I knew what the narrative was going to be. I knew the big werewolf myths. I'm a werewolf mythology nerd. I was sure that the episode would be super simple and based on like two or three myths that have carried down to us through the ages. I was, as always, really fucking wrong. And I have to thank my main source for this episode, the epic The Werewolf in the Ancient World by Daniel Ogden, which is out now in hardback. This episode would have been very, very different without this incredible source book. And I feel really lucky that it was published literally like a month or two before I started writing the episode. So before we get started, I've got a few caveats about this episode. First, due to bandwidth and time limitations, this episode is going to cover only the werewolf mythology of ancient Greece and a tiny bit of ancient Rome. And even then, this is by no means an exhaustive collection of all the werewolf stories. There are loads of stories with tangential werewolf aspects. And even if I had three years to write this episode, and Jenny has informed me several times that I do not. You do not. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm Rain sh- it back. <laughs> I'm sure. Even with that amount of time, I would miss some stories. So that's your first caveat. Jenny, do you want to tell them the second caveat? Okay. Second. This is Jen's second caveat, which I have been given to tell you. Because otherwise, it's just a lot of my voice. And I know you guys love Jenny's voice. I love her voice. Oh, well, gosh, I'm blushing. (laughs) So second, this episode is not going to move into, let's say, the four or five hundreds AD, which is when the werewolf mythology starts to become a little more familiar to us and takes on themes that have a lot of early Christian influence. Mostly because of who is writing the stories. Every once in a while, I had to use sources that were a little bit later, but I really wanted the sources to be ancient and not sort of being told through an early Christian lens. Because there's a lot of demonization, which isn't exactly how the ancient Greeks and Romans would have seen this story. We wanted to get a bit of an older view here than the early Christian lens and show you what it would have looked like before that happened. Because there were a lot of things that happened to werewolf mythology after Christianity started to show up. So we really wanted to keep the scope of this episode limited so we could delve deeply into the ancient world, what it would have looked like, and when these stories would have originated. What were they like at the very beginning? But most importantly, why these stories became such a big part of the cultural canon. Here's our third caveat. There are many, many different tellings and retellings of all the stories that are featured in this episode. And as always, we have to pick one version for the ease of the narrative. And, you know, to prove our thesis, if we have one, which I think we do. Our thesis. It sounds really official, but really it's just whatever crackpot idea 
we have in our heads right now. <laughs> I mean, our thesis is that werewolves are agents of chaos and destabilizing to the patriarchy. I mean, we're going to prove that. <laughs> oh, that's obvious. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so while you might feel like you know the story that we're telling you or that we're t- we've told the story wrong, remember, all of these stories come from an oral tradition and are translated and collated by different authors and told in different ways. And it's these different tellings by different authors in different times that make the story so fascinating to study. And, you know, they are all slightly different, and it's those differences that we've picked up on and we're we're focusing on. And all of the stories that I'm referring to in this episode are in Daniel Ogden's excellent source book, The Werewolf in the Ancient World. We get no money from plugging it, but it was invaluable. It's a dense, it's a very dense book, but I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to know more about werewolves in the ancient world, because there's a lot I had to leave out. So now, let's delve into the wild world of ancient werewolf mythology in Greece and Rome. I'm so excited. <laughs> Kukulin says yes. I might have been a little bit of a were creature myself. You know, I believe that, Kukulin. Although I would say that you are probably a little bit more in the berserker tradition, and that is indeed a werewolf adjacent tradition. Yes, it is, Miss Williamson. Yeah, so if I had done this episode, it would have been berserkers on the battlefield, but we didn't get time. I believe someone said you could do that, but she didn't have time to do it for you. That's right. That's (laughs) exactly what what Jen said. It is. For once, I had boundaries, and I was like, yeah, no, it would be so cool to include berserkers, and we've just done Celtic cultures, but I literally don't have time to do that. That's its own thing. (laughs) I'll probably get to it eventually. Kukulin, you want to collaborate with me on that one? (laughs) It would be my honor to collaborate and tell you more about my friends, the berserkers on the battlefield. So, Jen, how do you make a werewolf? I don't know, Jenny. Are you going to hit me with some sweet, sweet werewolf knowledge? Yes. So, the werewolf myth in the ancient world dates to around 2100 BC, roughly, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. We're talking about in the, you know, Western canon here. And in the Greek and Roman world, it may date to around the 400s BC. Unless you include the Odyssey, which I'll make a case for later. Unless you count the Odyssey. So let's say the 700s BC. So we're limiting our scope to ancient Greece and Rome, as Jen has told you. Obviously, we know that if you're in the medieval or modern world, you become a werewolf when bitten by a werewolf, right? That is a fact. That's a total fact. Yeah. Not the case in the ancient world, though. Things operated a little differently back then. So let's talk about how werewolves are believed to be made in the ancient world. And there were quite a few ways that a person could be transformed into a werewolf back then. I would call it kind of a hazard of life. One of the ways was a curse from a god or a goddess or a witch. Essentially, if you pissed off a god or a powerful witch or a goddess in the ancient world, the consequences could be werewolf or death or various curses or, I don't know, getting turned into a tree or whatever. I mean, Jen has told me that I should advocate for becoming a werewolf, but I don't know. I'd have to think it through. I'd really have to think it through, Jen. I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like it might be not as bad as death. You don't always have to be one forever, but like it would be kind of cool to be an apex predator just like going down the forest and the back alleys of ancient Athens and Rome and just like living your best predator life, I guess. Eating those grave dead. (laughs) Digging up them graves. (laughs) You're really selling it to me, Jen. See? Much better than death or being a tree. Sign me up. (laughs) So you could also be transformed into a werewolf by sharing a meal with a werewolf. Having bread, a lot of times it's bread or beer, 
could result in you waking up as a full-on wolf howling at the moon. What about wine? Um, it was much more beer, so I wonder if some of that comes down through the intersection of more Germanic cultures. Yeah, or like Egyptians. They were really into beer. Or Egyptians, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that I wasn't able to include because, again, Daniel Ogden's book is great. He has a whole section about an Egyptian sorcerer who could make werewolves. So it's possible some of that comes from there. That's fascinating. Interesting. So you could also become a werewolf if you swam across a certain stream in Arcadia as part of the Lakaya Festival. Or if you ate human meat, because cannibalism is a big no-no. Cannibalism is associated with being a werewolf in these stories, is what I'm picking up, right? Absolutely. This festival that we're talking about, the Lakaya Festival, was an ancient festival that took place on the slopes of Mount Lakayan, or Wolf Mountain, the tallest mountain in Arcadia, a region in the Peloponnese. This festival was heavily associated with cannibalism and human-wolf transformations. And based on archaeological evidence, it may be as much as 5,000 years old, predating the Greek myths that we all know by thousands of years. Daniel Ogden describes how initiates into the cult were supposedly transformed into wolves during this festival. He references a traditional tale in which a famous boxer named Demarcus was transformed into a wolf at this festival. According to the traditional tale, part of that festival involved sacrificing a young boy to Zeus. Demarcus ate some of this boy's flesh, and Zeus transformed him into a wolf for nine years. Pausanias tells us that men who were transformed into wolves by gods for eating human flesh could be turned back into men if they did not eat the human meat for nine whole years. But if they did eat the human meat, if they succumbed to their desire to devour human flesh, they would stay wolves forever. Daniel Ogden describes how people may really have been transformed ritually into wolves during this rite. Hint, it did not involve cannibalism, according to Daniel Ogden. It's just getting real watered down here, okay? <laughs> well, yeah, because I don't think this festival ever really involved cannibalism because cannibalism was such a dark, like, no-no. But what if it did, Jen? I know how much you love the idea of people eating small children and babies because you're a weird person. That is my jam. Listen, when I was pitching this episode to Jenny, I was like, let me tell you what this episode has. It has sex magic. It has being able to have an affair with your lover in your bed while your husband like might be sleeping right next to you because werewolves. It has children being eaten by gods. It has werepigs and werewolves and werestags. <laughs> it has all the things. Werepigs. Sign me up. Anyway. Okay, so I'm going to give you this quote from Daniel Ogden, who's just taking all the fun out of it here. He says, quote, We can now see that those performing the anthid rite, which is the rite in which men are transformed into wolves, are supposedly transformed into wolves not by eating human flesh, but simply by virtue of being chosen by lot or, more immediately, by the act of doffing their clothes and swimming across a pool. After a period, doubtless equivalent to one or two years patrolling the wilderness under light arms, I mean, doubtless. As you do. As you do. They return across the pool and recover their clothes and, with them, their humanity. And we can now see that the Demarcus tale described not one performer of the anthid rite amongst others, but an avowedly exceptional set of events, events explicitly presented as another myth. This story found its home amongst a distinctive suite of supernatural stories attaching to the outstanding athletes of archaic Greece. And that's actually a really good point because there is another werewolf story that involves another famous boxer that we're going to get to in a minute. And the other interesting thing about this is 
the Lycian Mountains are attached to our last story we're going to tell you, which is the most famous werewolf story about a guy called Lycian who got into who got into a lot of trouble. What I think about in here that Daniel Ogden doesn't make the point is potentially this was a ritual penance they were doing for um, the events of the last story we're going to tell you that might have been done in the festival. Ritual penance for cannibalism after a period of famine. That's what I think this is. I think it's about ritual penance, really. So in addition to becoming a werewolf by sharing a meal with a werewolf, getting yourself cursed by a god or goddess, eating human flesh, or crossing a specific stream or pool during a specific rite on Wolf Mountain, you could also become a werewolf through magic. I mean, it sounds like all of these are through magic in one way or another. They are, but by magic here, we mean more magic that is from a witch or a wizard and less divine. And, and also, more magic, Jenny, by casting a spell on yourself and turning yourself into a werewolf for your own personal gain, for your profits or pleasures. Self-werewolfism. Self-werewolfism. We're going to get to it in a, in a later section because self-werewolfism is kind of the outlier here. What's interesting about this is I feel like self-werewolfism becomes the norm in more modern werewolf stories. Like people can turn back and forth from werewolf to human at will in some modern werewolf stories. Sometimes it's more like it's the full moon. I feel like a lot of that is like the dark fantasy genre, which don't get me wrong. I love me some dark fantasy or dark romance, but sort of the real lore is not about being a self-werewolf, about being a magical person who can do that. It's about the pull of the moon, which we don't see, which is really interesting in the ancient mythology. But the form of being able to turn yourself into or out of being a werewolf has to do with one of Jenny's favorite topics, sex magic. This magic, this self-werewolfism magic, could have been wielded by both men and women. And a lot of times, they were outsiders to Greek society. They might have been an Egyptian magician, or they might have been a witch or a foreigner, because the ancient sources are real dark like that. They're real suspicious of foreigners. They really are. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, a lot of times they were the outliers in society, people who were had this knowledge that the average person didn't know, and that made them suspicious. So anyway, how could you tell if someone was a werewolf? I'm going to give you just a quick checklist. There are several ways that you could tell someone was a werewolf in the ancient world. Number one, do they take off their clothes, leave them under a rock, and then pee in a circle around that rock? Do they? Yes. Werewolf, marking the territory. Second, do they spend a lot of time hanging out at the edge of town, going through graveyards at night? Yes. Werewolf. Third, do they engage in acts of cannibalism? Let me think about this. Yes. Werewolf, Jen. Fourth, are they a woman who seems to have knowledge and understanding of the world and maybe can help you with your love-related problems and knows how the female body works? Absolutely. Werewolf. Fifth, have they broken the laws of Xenia, which were the laws of ancient Greek hospitality, and pissed off a god, probably Zeus? Probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have. Fucking werewolf. Man, it's so easy to be a werewolf in ancient Greece. It's almost like, who isn't a werewolf? Come on. Yeah. If you ever find yourself inexplicably transported back to ancient Greece or Rome, be on the lookout for werewolves because they're clearly all around you. And those who aren't werewolves, probably vampires. Probably. And here's the thing. Do not eat anything that looks or smells funny or like share a beer or a meal with someone you don't know because stealth werewolf. 
don't put your mouth on anything in the ancient world. I think that's a solid, <laughs> solid rule. Especially Julius Caesar. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> it's not going to end well. Anytime I can. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. about the gods, goddesses, and wolves of the underworld. Werewolves in ancient Greece and Rome were strongly associated with death and graveyards. The ancient Romans in particular used to have their cemeteries outside the city walls, and werewolves were believed to hang out in the cemeteries and eat the dead. This is a fascinating fact that gives us a glimpse into a reality of the ancient Roman world, graveyards on the outskirts of town where the dead weren't always buried that deep and where animals could get to them. This myth shows us that these could have been dangerous places where wolves and other scavenging animals hung out and where the dead were never far from the surface. And that's probably true of ancient Greek cemeteries as well. In ancient Greece, werewolves also had a strong association with death. And let's delve into the mythology of that a little bit more. So Hades, the king of the underworld, the god of the dead and wealth, was the most feared of the ancient Greek gods. Mortals were terrified of him. Worship of him was done in secret, generally in caves or under the ground, and sacrifices to Hades were both underground 
as in like people didn't talk about it and they were under the ground in caves and caverns under the earth and especially like caverns like I did research into this a while ago but the ideas of like caverns and caves a lot of times they thought were like liminal places where maybe you could find an entrance into the underworld so that's a lot of times why caverns are so associated with Hades. So Theory.com breaks it down for us like this, quote, when Hades was in his own kingdom, he was quite unaware of what was going on either on earth or in Olympus, and it was only the oaths and curses of men that reached his ears. So when Hades was in the underworld, he was totally removed from the world of men. He was doing his own thing, ruling his own kingdom, being wealthy, hanging out with his epic three-headed dog servers, who you know is a total mush if you know like exactly where to scratch behind his ears. He was hanging with his bestie, Hecate, and his wife, Persephone, who is sometimes in residence and sometimes not. So if a mortal wanted to call on this fearful god, they had to go to some extremes, like seeking him out in caves, the closest they could get to the underworld. Again, quoting from Theoi.com, quote, His character is described as fierce and inexorable, whence of all the gods he was most hated by mortals. He kept the gates of the lower world closed, that no shade might be able to escape or return to the region of light. When mortals invoked him, they struck the earth with their hands, and the sacrifices which were offered to him and Persephone consisted of black male and female sheep, and the person who offered the sacrifice had to turn away his face. So let's talk about this quote for a minute. Hades was so feared by mortals that even when they were sacrificing to him, they had to look away. They were like, must not look in case we catch his eye. But we totally want to like catch his eye in the good way in that he wants to favor us. So why did they sacrifice sheep? I have a theory, which Jenny is going to vehemently disagree with, but I don't care. I think it's because Hades might have been able to turn himself into a wolf or was somehow associated with a wolf. Because what are wolves famous for attacking? Sheep. Why would a specific sheep, i.e. a black male sheep, Hades, and a white female, Persephone, be sacrificed? Is it because Hades secretly had a werewolf form? Or a pet werewolf? Or dog? I don't know. I think so. Well, he definitely had a pet dog, Cerberus. He did. I, I think this is a stretch, Jen. And the reason is, I actually looked this up. So sheep were actually the most common animal sacrificed in ancient Greece. So it's not that weird that they were sacrificed to Hades. But if you want to get the favor of a god, what do you sacrifice? A white bull. Mostly bulls and heifers and like you don't see, oh, I want to get Hades' favor. I'm going to sacrifice a sheep. You know, (laughs) you would be like, you would give him a bull. Well, that's true of any god. It's true of any god. I mean, realistically, the bull was the most favored sacrifice among most of the pantheon but the sheep was the most common and the reason for that is that most people couldn't afford to sacrifice a bull so um i would say that this isn't necessarily an indication that hades favored the sheep more it's just what people sacrifice to him more is my thought i mean i could be wrong also wolves will also attack goats so i don't know i i find this a tad tenuous i'm not saying it's not tenuous but i'm just saying I find it really interesting because my next point is we know that in mythology, Hades had a wolfskin helmet of invisibility that he wore. This helmet, as I said, made him invisible. And the origins of it are murky. Like a lot of times you don't see it as a wolfskin. You see it more as like a like a helmet you'd wear in battle. But sometimes you do see it as a wolfskin helmet. And some of the sources say that the Cyclops made it for him. Others don't really tell us where he got this hat of invisibility. So... 
I would like to posit again that maybe Hades could turn into a wolf. Maybe that's part of how he became invisible, because think about it. Wolves are these predators that attack in the dark and by night and by stealth. Like, I'm seeing just Hades and his helmet of invisibility here. Maybe there is an interesting aspect of transformation here, you know, turning from visible to invisible. I don't know that I'm entirely convinced, though. I think the thing that I'd also like to to put forward in my wolf theory is that wolves, a lot of times in the ancient world, they were kind of really stealthy and they tended to pick people off when they were alone and they were easier prey. And you didn't maybe know that they were about to attack you until they did. And I feel like if you've got a god, he can turn himself invisible and then all of a sudden appears and maybe bad things happen like death. Like maybe there's a connection there. I don't know. I'm making lots of spurious arguments and I'm not 100% saying that I believe all of them. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there is an interesting through line here with wolves being animals that haunt graveyards historically. Possibly you would find wolves in graveyards, you know, digging up the dead in an ancient Greek or Roman graveyard. So that's a thought that they were already associated with death, which means they would already be associated with Hades. Well, we know wolves and dogs were because you would see them, you know, especially on ancient battlefields. I mean, if there was a bunch of dead out there, you would have dogs. I'm sure you'd have wolves. You had lots of other carrion that are like, oh, dead picnic. Let's go. Right. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the animal guarding the underworld is a three-headed dog. I think that was probably founded in ancient Greek and Roman associations with dogs and wolves and places where the dead were. So Jenny, there's a reason why wolves in particular were associated with Hades and the deities of the underworld. So this is a quote from an article by Nadine Metzger called Battling Demons with Medical Authority, Werewolves, Physicians, and Rationalization. So, quote, The idea of transformation into a wolf can be found throughout the history of European thought, either as an actual belief in werewolves or simply as a literary motif. No other animal has rivaled the supremacy of the wolf in terms of animal transformation. This may well be due to the fact that for thousands of years, wolves constituted the most common and most dangerous land-based predator throughout Europe. They were not eradicated from the human environment until they were hunted intensively, as in England, where the wolf was extinct by the end of the 15th century. Their habitat disappeared during industrialization. And I just also want to say, in the U.S., uh, wolves have been recently stripped of their protected status and are being hunted intensively in areas of the American West. And I find that really tragic. Wolves in real life are predators. They are. But they're also really family-based animals and should not be eradicated. Can we just say that? Yeah. So let's break this down. Wolves in European thought were the big bads. They attacked generally at night by stealth. You did not see them coming. They fed on both the living and the dead. Like dogs, you could find wolves in graveyards digging up the bones and flesh of the newly buried, like we've been saying. Probably it was the animal that everywhere had. Other places would have had different things, but this was maybe the common land-based predator that existed across the entire continent. I'm not sure. Yeah, and, you know, according to Nadine Metzger, they could mete out death indiscriminately to animals and people, and if they didn't get you in this life, well, they could have your bones in the next. You can see why ancient people associated wolves, creatures that stalked the night, with almost invisibility, and who feasted in graveyards on the flesh and bones of the recently deceased, with death and with Hades. We can see why that connection might exist. And... Not just Hades, either. In Greek mythology, wolves would also come to be associated with Hecate. So Hecate was a badass goddess. She was the goddess of witchcraft and magic and poisons, and she loved to hang out at the crossroads. Hecate is associated with the underworld and with the crossroads and graveyards. Theory.com tells us, quote, Here's another very important feature 
which arose out of the notion of Hecate being an infernal divinity. Namely, she was regarded as a spectral being, who at night sent from the lower world all kinds of demons and terrible phantoms, who taught sorcery and witchcraft, who dwelt at places where two roads crossed each other on tombs and near the blood of murdered persons. She herself too wanders about with the souls of the dead, and her approach is announced by the whining and howling of dogs. A number of epithets given her by the poets contain allusions to these features of the popular belief, or to her form. She is described as of terrible appearance, either with three bodies or three heads, one of a horse, the second of a dog, and the third of a lion. So let's just break this down. Hecate, goddess of magic and witchcraft, hangs out at the crossroads just like outside of town where all the cool kids like the Lamia and Booza, ancient vampires, corpses that have been buried so they don't become ancient vampires. They're all there at the crossroads just hanging out. She frequents graveyards and gets whatever things she needs for her magic there. She's a fearful goddess who is not afraid to walk alone at night and do the shit she needs to do. She's often dressed as a maiden in a short tunic and with hunting boots, and her presence and approach is heralded by the whining and howling of dogs. We need to stop here and have a conversation about these dogs. We've seen in other sources that her appearance was heralded by wolves as well as dogs. Dogs and wolves were in Hecate's sort of Wild Hunt-esque entourage, and that's important. Hecate is being depicted here as a huntress complete with her hunting wolves, her hunting dogs, with her hunting pack. She's a goddess who works in the upper world, in the shadows, and she has immense power. She's feared by most mortals, kind of like the wolves of the ancient world. She's a top apex predator. And for the most part, only mortals in the most dire of situations would call upon her. Mortals like Queen Hecuba of Troy, who after the fall of her city leapt to her death. She was transformed by Hecate into a dog who became a part of the goddess's entourage. I have a question about that. So did Hecuba, like, call upon Hecate mid-leap and get transformed mid-leap into a dog? We don't really know. We know that Hecate took pity on her and transformed her into a dog instead of, you know, letting her die. There, I mean, there's many other myths of what happened to Hecuba that don't involve her turning into a dog. I saw this in one place on Theo.com. I like to think that in the despair and after everything that happened, she was just so done and she was like, I can't anymore. And Hecate was like, that is the energy I want for my pack. Right, right. That desperate energy. (laughs) Well, but also that that rage, like I am here to take you and mold you and make you fierce. I'm going to give you claws and teeth and no one will ever do something like this to you again. I love it. I love it, too. I'm really sold. Cool. And here, in the discussion of Hecate, we get another tantalizing glimpse of the realities of the ancient world. In many communities in the ancient past, wise older women with a knowledge of herbs were the main healthcare provider in their local communities. These women, as you can imagine, were also demonized, seen as witches, their knowledge a threat to the patriarchy, we've seen it for so long, because they lived outside of male control. So did these women visit graveyards at night to collect their healing herbs, possibly because men avoided these places? Perhaps it was safer for a woman alone to be in a graveyard, even with all the wolves and the dogs and stuff, than to be in other places where they might encounter men while alone. Um, anyway, so Hecate was a powerful goddess who might reflect tantalizing realities of older women, wise in herb lore, who lived in the ancient world. Like her mortal counterparts, she was powerful, and only those in the most dire need called upon her. 
but sometimes mortals called upon the dreaded gods and goddesses of the underworld for reasons other than life and death. These were mortals who had a desire for power, for life, people who wanted to make their living on their own terms. Who didn't want to wait until they were in dire streets to get to know the infernal gods. Goddamn right. Why should you wait to get to know the infernal gods? That's my question. It's always a good time. Have you heard the good news about Hecate and Hades? It's always a good time to get to know your local infernal gods. So this brings us to one of our favorite sections of this episode. Let's talk about it. This is my favorite. It is werewolfism for profit and pleasure. Get excited. (laughs) As you can imagine, there was a business model to werewolfism because For as long as people have been around, if they've been able to find a way to make money at their passions, well, they've been able to turn them into a career. The careers in question here are that of professional witches and werewolves. Witches exist throughout all of Greco-Roman mythology. And one day, I promise I'll tell you their stories. But the story that I'm going to tell you right now involves a witch with a very particular skill set. Say you want to take a lover. You've got some carnal desires. You've got an itch that you really need scratched. You have found this person. You have fallen into love or lust with them. There's just a small problem. You're a married woman in ancient Greece. But here's the thing. You could go to a professional witch to get help with your problem. So let's talk about how you might get help with this little problem of being married and wanting to take a lover. And this little problem is not about poisoning your husband. Not this time. We're getting a little more creative here. So there's this witch called Acanthus in Greek mythology who could turn into a werewolf, scratch your husband's eyeballs with her werewolf claw, and blind your husband to your affair. Now, this is a very specific and very complex skill set. This was a very particular kind of blinding that only applied to when you, his wife, happened to be banging someone who was not your husband. This blinding could mean that you could be literally having sex with your lover in your marriage bed right next to your husband, and he wouldn't notice. That's some powerful shit. This magic only worked with one lover. Like, if you wanted to fool around with more than one lover, you'd have to go back and pay Acanthus again to make a second scratch in your husband's eyeball to blind him to that person. This is a business, honey. It is not a charity. The scratch that Acanthus gives is not going to be a scratch that applies to all lovers. It's just this one specific lover. If you want another lover, you got to pay more. It's not a charity. She's not here to make friends. So there's an epic description of Acanthus's powers from Propertius. Quote, She dared to set rules for the spellbound moon and disguised her shape as a nocturnal wolf so that by art she could blind watching husbands and tear out the innocent eyes of crows with her nails and took counsel with owls concerning my blood and for me collected the fluids produced by a pregnant mare. I don't know what this is about the pregnant mare. It's getting a little weird. She uh, she was definitely working on something here. She's <laughs> definitely collecting some fluids, okay? <laughs> Can you do magic without fluids? I don't know. Probably not. You need to have some kind of lubricating agent. So I wanted to include this quote for a few reasons. First, it very clearly makes the case that werewolves and witches were inexorably linked. Witches could become werewolves. Second, it also makes a big connection between witches, Hecate, and the underworld, and werewolves. And again, was Hades a werewolf? Maybe. I question that. So, and third, I love the details in in the quote that I included that we get about the work of the witch. This is a difficult freelance contract. This werewitch has to go out at night 
make up the spell that she has to transform into a wolf in order to enact. I mean, this is some badassery. She deserves to make extra money. And I mean, I would charge you each time. And every time you came back to me, I would charge you like more and more. I'd get you on the hook. No free consultations here. No. So this story also sows fear into the mind of the very patriarchal ancient Greeks. The women who generally were considered witches tended to live on the fringes of society. They had a great knowledge of the natural world, probably of herbs and plants and things that could cure as well as kill. And they knew a lot about when to harvest plants, where they could be found, and sometimes that might be a graveyard because, as gross as it is, graveyards and battlefields were places that were great for growing things because fertilizer. I mean, that makes sense. So this story of a very skilled witch who is just doing her best to work her sex magic, just fulfilling her contract. It just goes to add to the fear of women, fear of women who lived on their own, fear of women who wanted their own agency in sex. God forbid a woman gets to choose who to have sex with instead of just having sex with a husband that her family chose for her when she was 12. God forbid. Fear of women who want to be able to have freedom and who they bone and how they live. And werewolves, agents of chaos and destroyers of the patriarchy. I'm seeing it. That's our thesis, really. So this is one type of werewolf, the werewitch. Clearly, as we've said, she's got a very specialized skill set, that of self-werewolfism. And that skill set challenges the patriarchy by allowing her clients, women who want to bone people who are not their husband, to make their own sexual choices. Here's another type of werewolf, though, one who transforms for the dark pleasures. To take revenge on a town and enact violence. To blackmail people into sending him their fairest maidens as brides, perhaps. This story is a bit rapey, just warning you. It's not a bit rapey. It is rapey. So this werewolf is sometimes categorized as a demon werewolf. And this is a dark story that comes to us from Italy. The story has its roots in the Odyssey and deals with a wayward crew member from Odysseus' ship, who is called Hero in this story, although he is anything but a hero. So Hero, when Odysseus' ship lands in Temesa, rapes a young maiden. And the people of Temesa are not happy, and they get together and stone this motherfucker. That is the appropriate response here. Yeah. So Odysseus doesn't give this guy a proper burial. He pieces out with the rest of his crew, thinking, like, good riddance. But because this hero wasn't properly buried, he wasn't all the way dead by ancient standards, meaning his restless shade could come back to terrorize the people of Temesa. And this is what Pausanias tells us about it. Quote, But the ghost of the stone man never ceased killing without discrimination the people of Temesa, attacking both old and young, until, when the inhabitants had resolved to flee from Italy for good, the Pythian priestess forbade them to leave Temesa and ordered them to propitiate the hero. Just give him what he wants, so he quits being an asshole. Exactly, because that's the way we deal with assholes. And so the people setting him a sanctuary apart and building a temple, and to give him every year as a wife, the fairest maiden in Temesa. So the people did what the Pythian priestess ordered. I mean, she is a priestess of the Pythian as Apollo, so she's an oracular priestess. She must know something. People built the hero a temple and started sacrificing a fair maiden to this demon werewolf ghost once a year. And they suffered no more trouble from him, as long as they kept those fair maidens coming. But then, according to the mythology, a local sports legend, of course, it's always a local sports legend, a boxer named Euthymus, happened to come to Temesa just when people were sacrificing a fair maiden, i.e., quote, giving as wife to the ghost. 
When he heard what was going on, he had an overwhelming urge to enter the temple and see the maiden with his own eyeballs. And when he saw her with his own eyeballs, of course, he fell head over heels in love because she was the most beautiful maiden in the land. The girl swore to marry him if he helped her out and saved her from this ghost. And so Euthymus, of course he said yes. He's like, fuck yeah, goddamn. Putting on his armor, he settled in to wait for this ghost. And when night fell, Hero appeared, and Euthymus beat him into submission, driving Hero off the land entirely and into the sea. Because that's where Hero belongs. He belongs in the sea. And then... Euthymus and the fair maiden had a beautiful wedding. It was very well appointed. There were all these little candles everywhere, and everyone got a lot of great party favors, and everyone in the land was freed from Hero. Pausanias tells us that Euthymus lived to extreme old age, and, quote, escaping again from death, departed from among men in another way. Sometimes he might have been like a river god. There's all sorts of different things associated. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is the other example that we mentioned about a famous boxer, like a famous athlete being attached to um, werewolf stories, which is, it's interesting. I don't know what to make of it, but the correlation is there. It is, and I think what to make of it is, like, a lot of times you would see some of these athletes who I imagine would have had otherworldly strength because they were stronger than your average person. These huge epic Olympians. I mean, think about it right now. Like, the Olympians that, that we see every day, they are, they are like superhumans compared to most of us normal mortals, you know? They have abilities that surpass those of normal people, so they might seem superhuman to the people watching. So I can see why this happens. So Pausanias adds an interesting postscript to this story. Quote, This I heard, and I also saw by chance a picture dealing with the subject. It was a copy of an ancient picture. There was a stripling, Sybaris, a river, Calabrus, and a spring, Lyca. Besides, there was a hero shrine and the city of Temesa, and in the midst was the ghost that Euthymus cast out, horribly black in color and exceedingly dreadful in all his appearance. He had a wolf skin thrown round him as a garment. The letters on the picture gave his name as Lycus. So, what does this tell us exactly about this werewolf hero? First, if you stone a rapist to death in ancient Italy, you might turn him into a werewolf. I mean, why? And second, if you stone a rapist to death in ancient Italy, and he turned into a werewolf, it was going to demand a young maiden once a year to not completely destroy your town. And apparently, you're going to give that to him. This is a really specific set of rules. It is. And third, it takes an Olympic boxer to drive out this hero and restore order in the city. Although, the end of this story makes me wonder, did he drive out the werewolf? Or, in his extreme old age, did he become one? You know, if you live long enough, you always become the werewolf, Jen. <laughs> the life after death is not actually a place, it's just werewolfism. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Airwave Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Adios, au revoir, au revoir to Zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Let's talk about medical lycanthropy, shall we? So we couldn't talk about werewolves in the ancient world and not bring up medical lycanthropy because the ancient Greeks believed that lycanthropy, i.e. becoming a werewolf, was a medical condition. They didn't see it the same way that we do in modern times. So here's a brilliant quote from an article by Nadine Metzger. Quote, Ancient Greek medicine describes lycanthropy sufferers, people who changed into werewolves, as melancholics who are dangerous neither to themselves nor to others and who suffer from severe dryness of the body. They roam out at night and mimic the ways of the wolves or dogs and mostly loiter by the grave monuments until daybreak. Suggestions for treatment alongside venesection, which was drawing blood, and a light diet, include various pharmaceuticals intended to minimize the damaging influence of black bile in the body of the patient. The illness concept, initially established in this vein, was modified and extended as it was passed on through the centuries, particularly in Arabic medicine, which was to have a decisive influence on the content of the descriptions of wolfish madness in the Latin scholarly medical writings of the medieval period. Of particular importance is the canon of Ibsen. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. In contrast, in the West, the few Latin translations of the Greek lycanthropy descriptions from late antiquity had virtually no influence, resulting in the original form of lycanthropy being largely forgotten until humanistic medical authors retranslated the ancient Greek sources. So what does all that mean, Jen? So I wanted to include this because I found it incredibly fascinating. Breaking down what this quote is basically saying is that the ancient Greeks believed that medical lycanthropy wasn't necessarily about turning into an actual wolf, although it could have been. It was kind of more about what sounds to me like some kind of depression. It was about hanging out in graveyards and feeling depressed. People with lycanthropy mimicked the behavior of wolves by going to graveyards. I mean, did they dig up dead bodies and eat them? I don't know. It doesn't say that. But it doesn't say that they actually turned into wolves or were wolves. It's only in more modern times that we associate lycanthropy with the full moon, with mania, and with turning into a wild inhuman monster. And that's why I wanted to have this here. Because could it be possible that for the ancient Greeks, medical lycanthropy was a way of explaining things like depression or other mental illnesses? That was the question that I had. Like, maybe this arose as an explanation for depression or sudden changes in personality that people might have. And also unexplained grief. There's a lot of ways in which people grieve. Sometimes when you're grieving, a lot of times, you'll, you know, is particularly if you have a grave you can visit, you go back and back and back and you talk to the, the grave and the person. Like, there are different ways of grieving that might have been really atypical to the ancient Greeks. They might have been like, well, they're turning into a werewolf. They're being lured by the siren sound of this grave of whatever's beyond. 
Right. Wolves hang out in graveyards. Is this person developing an affinity for wolves, you know, as opposed to realizing that it was grief because in the ancient Greek world, people were expected to express grief differently? Absolutely. And also the times in which people would have had to go to things like a graveyard might not have been in the middle of the day when they were working. It might have been in the evening, times wherein, you know, it's not standard to be out and about because that's the only time they would have to go and maybe grieve. Right. The definition here makes it very clear that the ancient Greeks didn't believe that these particular lycanthropes were a danger to themselves or others. It's more that they thought that they were in danger from others, which a lot of times is a fear that we have for people with mental illness. Yeah, I think that's a real truth for people with mental illnesses. They're they're more likely to be abused and to be vulnerable to other people than they are to be violent themselves. Exactly. And as someone who, who has dealt with depression and anxiety and has mental illness in her family and in her life, that is the truth for the most part. I just wanted to put that in there because I just thought it's so different from what we see coming down through the Middle Ages. And now that I've rounded out sort of our picture of werewolves in the ancient world, I wanted to sort of test Jenny and our listeners with some examples of werewolf folklore. It's two stories. And to ask the question at the end of each story, is this a werewolf story or not? And I'll let Jenny decide and I may have to rebut her. But, you know, let's go. So our first story is Circe and the werewolves, werelions and werepigs of Aia. Oh, my God. This this name Aia. So this island is spelled A-E-A-E-A. Well, it's actually Aia is how it's pronounced. Aia. So possibly the first written account of a werewolf in Greek mythology occurs in Homer's Odyssey, which was composed around the 8th or 7th century BC, but of course was based on a much older oral tradition that could have gone back, you know, way back into the Bronze Age. Who knows? So you're probably scratching your head and saying, wait a minute. I'd remember a werewolf in the Odyssey. There's no werewolves in the Odyssey. What are you talking about? This story that Daniel Ogden has pointed out to me, and now I can't not see the werewolves. Jen cannot not see the werewolves. Werewolves? Werewolves. Oh, Werewolves of Aya. Ow! So, Odysseus's men arrive at Circe's island. They've been at sea for months, tossed about, and subjected to many misadventures. And when they arrive, what do they find? Lots of wild animals, in particular, a wild stag that they hunt and kill. They're tired of fish and they're hungry. And in the process of hunting this wild stag and then killing it and eating it, they stumble upon a home. It's a modest little place, a cottage, tucked away from the shore, and at this home they find pigs, tame lions, and tame wolves. The wolves look at the men who arrive at the door with a sort of knowing fear in their eyes. Perhaps a warning. Homer tells us, quote, Within the forest glades, they found the house of Circe, built of polished stone, in a place of wide outlook, and round about it were mountain wolves and lions, whom Circe herself had bewitched, for she gave them evil drugs. Yet these beasts did not rush upon my men, but pranced about them fawningly, wagging their long tails. And as when hounds fawn around their master as he comes from a feast, for he ever brings them bits to soothe their temper— So about them fawned the stout-clawed wolves and lions, but they were seized with fear as they saw the dread monsters. So they stood in the gateway of the fair-tressed goddess, and within they heard Circe singing with sweet voice as she went to and fro before a great imperishable web, such as is the handiwork of goddesses, finely woven and beautiful and glorious. So why did I make Jenny read this really long quote? You tell me, Jen. I'm going to. The quote tells us that the wolves and lions who guarded Circe's house 
were bewitched. And it's possible that they were once men who were turned into werewolves and I suppose were-lions. Or it's possible that they were wild animals who were tamed by Cersei via some sort of magic. It's really tough to know here. I mean, I'm taking the point that Daniel Ogden made in his book and arguing it. And it's tough to know because Homer does not give us those important details. But I am team werewolf here. I think that small glimpse of the wolves looking into the sailor's eyes knowingly, knowing what's going to happen to them. I think it's a warning. I think it's a it's a human look they're giving them. And here's the reason why I think these wolves could, in fact, be werewolves. Cersei is infamous for turning men into animals. In particular, she turns men who in the story can be kind of assholes into pigs. There is an entire process for her magic, which Homer shares with us. Quote, she brought them, Odysseus's crew, in and made them sit on chairs and seats and made for them a potion of cheese and barley meal and yellow honey with pramnian wine. But in the food, she mixed baneful drugs that they might utterly forget their native land. Now, when she had given them the potion and they had drunk it off, Then she presently smote them with her wand and penned them in the styes, and they had the heads and voice and bristles and shape of swine. But their minds remained unchanged, even as before. So they were penned there weeping, and before them Circe flung mast and acorns and the fruit of the cornel tree to eat, such things as wallowing swine are wont to feed upon. So let's break this down. Cersei brings the men into her home, she feeds them, and then she turns them into pigs. Pigs who retain the memories of their lives as men, but are forced into the shape of pigs. You know what Cersei made here, right, Jenny? Were-pigs. I mean, this is a pretty loose definition of were-pig. It is absolutely not, because were means man, right? So she turned a man into a pig. It is literally were-pig. They retain the memory. They retain what it was like to be a man. They retain knowledge of their former form. They are still man inside pig. We're a pig. Okay, but we're pigs aren't werewolves. Exactly. But they are indicative of how Cersei could turn men into animals, right? That is the point we're driving at. So remember, the ancient Greeks and Romans believed you could turn into a werewolf by eating a meal with a werewolf or drinking beer with one. Are they getting some of that story from Homer here? Is it coming from Circe, this meal they shared with this witch? Is that leading into the lore? The connection here is a little fuzzy. The story does involve eating a meal and turning into a were-pig. So this isn't telling us that Circe did make werewolves, but she did make were-pigs. But to be fair, this story also has two more elements of werewolf transformation cannibalism, and breaking the laws of Xenia, or the ritualized rules of ancient Greek hospitality. So first, when Odysseus's sailors arrived on Circe's island, they go hunting and kill and eat a stag. And I paraphrased it from Daniel Ogden's book because I didn't want to give you a long quote. But essentially it states that if we already know that Circe may have transformed men into tame animals that inhabit her island, is it such a far stretch that this stag might have once been a man? So if we're going with that theory, that all the animals on Circe's island were in fact transformed men, then Odysseus's sailors have already committed an act of cannibalism by eating a stag that was once a man before they even get to Circe's house. In theory, yes. So next, we have breaking the laws of Xenia. So the law of Xenia was a strict rule about hospitality that existed in the Iliad and the Odyssey and in ancient Greek mythology. 
And there are three basic tenets involved to this rule. One, the host must respect the guest. The guest must respect the host. And the host must offer the guest a parting gift. The law of Xenia is supposed to set up a relationship of mutual gift giving and obligation that keeps things civil between locals and travelers in need. So this law was Zeus's domain. Zeus was sometimes referred to as Zeus Xenios and was seen as both a protector of guests and an avenger of wrongs done to traveling strangers. Hence, he gets particularly pissed when somebody violates the law of Xenia. Yeah. So the men visit Circe's house and share a meal with her. Do they break the laws of Xenia? It's unclear. Homer doesn't really tell us. We don't get this passage from Circe's point of view. We don't. Homer's not interested in telling us how Circe feels about this gaggle of hardened sailors in her house, probably fucking stuff up. It's possible that they tried to press their luck with Cersei and her hospitality and to take advantage of her or harm her. I mean, this is definitely the interpretation that Madeline Miller makes in her novel Cersei. I don't think it's too far a stretch to think that maybe in between the lines of Homer's Odyssey, we can see that the sailors might have taken advantage of the goddess and broke the laws of Xenia, and maybe she's punishing them for it. It wouldn't surprise me, but again, it's not explicitly written there, so it's a lot of inference. So. Is this a werewolf tale? Yes, maybe, possibly. I love the idea that those wolves are werewolves and that Cersei is making werepigs and that she owns this island and if you want to regain your ability to be a man and walk on it, you got to prove it to Cersei. I think that this is really iffy. It's fun to read between the lines. It's fun to write fan fiction. You can absolutely find evidence here to craft your own narrative. But I have six points to make. Number one. We don't actually know from the text that all the animals on Cersei's island were transformed men. We just know that the pigs are transformed men. It's also iffy that the men committed cannibalism by eating the stag because the stag may or may not have been a man. That's an inference that Daniel Ogden is making here. Point the second. Can we even say it's cannibalism even if the men eat a stag that was once a man? I mean, it's a stag now, right? So I'm going to say yes, because this is kind of the argument is that stag has like a human conscience, even though it's in a stag's body. So technically they're eating the flesh of a stag. I mean, even if the stag's mind is a human mind, if you're eating the stag meat, does that count as cannibalism? I think that's a little iffy myself. You may disagree. My third point, the only animals we see Cersei transform men into are pigs. We know that she can transform men into pigs. We don't know that she can transform men into anything other than pigs. You are nitpicking. I'm sorry. You are nitpicking. Cersei has the power to transform anything into whatever she wants. She chooses pigs because I believe that the men treated her in a way that she's like, you are acting like swine. I will turn you into them. Maybe she just wanted to have some more pigs so she could have bacon later. I mean, it's it's not the worst way to get bacon. <laughs> It's not the best way. <laughs> Look, how else are you going to get bacon on an island with no supermarket? I have no bacon. And if one more man fucks up my house and makes a mess of things and threatens me, I swear to God, I'll turn him into a pig and then I'll have bacon. Wait a minute. Listen, I'm just imagining a different scenario that is also possible where she just wanted some bacon. <laughs> Maybe the first time she did it, it was out of necessity. And then later on, she was just like, fuck it. You know, the... First, second, third gaggle of men who shows up at your door, you might show restraint, but then the fourth one shows up and you're like, you know, there's so many of them and I have no bacon. <laughs> so anyway, uh, fourth point here, um, sharing a meal with a werewolf will transform you into a werewolf. Cersei is not a werewolf. Question. Can you actually say someone is a were-animal if they were transformed into that animal permanently? And is a factor of being a were-animal also 
being able to go back to being a human at some point. Yes, you can definitely say they are a were-animal if they were turned into an animal permanently, but still retain their sort of human consciousness. And being able to turn back into a human is not, as far as I'm aware, a condition of being a were-animal. I don't know. I've seen a lot of depictions of werewolves where they do kind of lose their human consciousness while they're wolves and then they get it back when they become human again. But that is explicitly not what happened here. What happened in the evidence we have from Homer is that the men retained, you know, what it was to be human. They're crying. They understand what's going to happen to them. They understand what has happened to them as a human would. Well, that's why I question whether this is a werewolf story at all. There's no men being turned into wolves, so it's actually a were-pig story. I I question whether it's a were-pig story at all. I think, like, the idea of a were-animal is a man-whatever, so it's a man-wolf. In this instance, it's a man-pig. These are pigs that have the consciousness of men. Yeah, but that's what makes a werewolf so terrifying, is that the animalistic side of the animal has completely taken over the human mind and the human body, making it capable of doing anything to anybody. You're looking at this from, like, a medieval lens. I'm saying from an ancient lens, this makes sense to me because the ancient lens isn't necessarily saying that these people are transforming into these superhuman, hulking, half-man, half-beast. It's more they're turning into the animal, having the ability to possess parts of the animal and also the consciousness of a man and the speed of a wolf. So I think to me, the reason this seemed to work is because what we see in the medieval and in the later mythology around werewolves is it is half man, half beast. It's bigger than all the wolves and claws and it's got the consciousness of a man and the super body speed of a wolf. That's not really what the mythology is telling us here. We see it a little with the hero of Tamesa and that's why the only person who could kill him was the Olympic boxer. But we're not seeing it anywhere else in the mythology. And that's where I'm kind of like, I would lean towards this being a werewolf in the ancient sense story. But again, there's so much supposition. Yeah, I feel like there's too much supposition for me to believe that this is a werewolf story. However, the only thing that gives me a slight amount of pause here is the idea that the men, uh, Odysseus's men, might see these wolves at Circe's house and get a certain shiver down their spine. There seems to be something knowing in their eyes, and that is in the text, right? Like, that's in the text. It's an intelligence beyond a normal wolf's intelligence, and it's a warning. I mean, that is a slight clue that makes me think that maybe you're on to something here. I think based on the stories I have included here, in the ancient world, your mind stays human, but you take on the body of a beast. And the interesting thing is, as we see the shift later on in the medieval times, in the Christian mythology, your mind goes. You may have a body of a human, but you take on the mannerisms of a beast. And there's so much interesting stuff about werewolves and serial killers and murder and what that all might have been. And I can't wait to get there. But I don't think that's what was happening here in these stories of the ancient world. Right. So that is maybe the oldest written tale of werewolves if, and this is a big stretch, if, You believe the tame wolves and lions were once men, although I definitely would make a case for the werepigs. But let's take a look at the most famous werewolf tale in Greek mythology, and that is the tale of Lycaon and the werewolves of Arcadia. This story has a lot of different variations, and a lot of them are fragments and incomplete. At best, this story is kind of a game of telephone. It's hard to figure out which source exactly to trust and what's going on. So you kind of just have to go with one and tell the story how you want to. And the one starting point that interested me the most is one of Hesiod's fragments from the 8th or 7th century BC. So according to Hesiod, 
There was this king called Lycaon. He was the king of the Arcadians who lived very long ago, during the time before Greek's mythical Great Deluge. This may correspond to the historical period before the Bronze Age collapse, which is a topic we'd love to delve into, but not in this episode. So Lycaon was this mythical king who lived in Bronze Age Greece. He, he was also mythical, so I don't know that he actually ever lived. He had 50 sons, according to mythology, and one daughter, Callisto. Hesiod tells us, quote, Callisto was the daughter of Lycaon and lived in Arcadia. She was seduced by Zeus, but the goddess Artemis was enraged and changed her into a beast. Thus, she became a bear and gave birth to a son called Arcus. But while she was in the mountains, she was hunted by some goat herds and given up with her babe to Lycaon. So I really wanted to include this passage because it maybe tells us a bit about Lycaon and his unfortunate daughter. Because we all know what seduced means, right? In the ancient sources, it means raped. So... Callisto was raped by Zeus. In Hesiod's story, Artemis was so angry at Callisto. And why? Why was she angry at her? Well, that has to do with violence not ever being able to be enacted against the man. It has to always be against a woman. But I want to tell you why she was so angry at Callisto that she turned her into a bear. And I will actually make a case afterwards that maybe being a bear isn't the worst thing. So, Pseudohygienist tells us, quote, Callisto, daughter of Lycaon, who ruled in Arcadia, out of her zeal for hunting, joined Artemis and was greatly loved by the goddess because of her similar temperaments. Later, when made pregnant by Zeus, she feared to tell the truth to Artemis. But she couldn't conceal it for long, for as her womb grew heavier near the time of her delivery, when she was refreshing her tired body in a stream, Artemis realized she had not preserved her virginity. In keeping with her deep distrust, the goddess inflicted no light punishment. Taking away her maiden features, she changed her into the form of a bear called Arctos in Greek. In this form, she bore Arcus. So let's break this down just a little bit. Callisto was a follower of Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and committed virgin. She was a beloved of Artemis. In other forms of the story, and I'm definitely picking up what they're putting down here, she and Artemis may have been lovers. And fuck daddy Zeus, because that's what we're calling him, was smitten with Callisto. Lots of versions of the myth say that Callisto didn't want anything to do with fuck daddy Zeus, because who can blame her? She had the love of a goddess, and she was happy. But fuck daddy Zeus was an asshole. He transformed into Artemis. He disguised himself as Callisto's lover, Artemis. And wait, wait, not just Callista's lover, Artemis, his daughter, Artemis. So he transformed himself into his own goddamn daughter to quote unquote seduce, i.e. rape, her girlfriend, Callisto. Artemis was clearly pissed off and took out her rage, not against Zeus, let's be clear, because God forbid we take out our rage on the dude who actually deserves it. No, she took out her rage at Callisto by turning her into a bear. I feel like turning her into a bear makes me angry, but I wonder if this is a bit like what Hecate did for Hecuba. Like, maybe there's a part of Artemis that was like, I will give you fangs and teeth and claws. I will give you the strength that no one, not even a god, will overpower you. Again, I wonder if that's kind of a bit of it. I'm being kind of an apologist here for Artemis in her taking her rage out that she had against, uh, against Zeus on her lover. Jen posits that this is the first were-animal in Arcadia, Callisto. She's a were-bear. A were-bear. Isn't that cool? It's the were-bear stare, Jen. <laughs> I really want some were-bear art now. I want Callisto 
And I want I want to see like some Callisto and Artemis art, Ugh, but happy art, not sad art. Anyone anyone out there feel like doing some I don't know fan art for us about where bear Callisto? Anyway, so what I'm trying to get through here is this episode is not about werebears, right? It's about werewolves. So when werebear Callisto finally gives birth to her baby, it's a boy. His name is Arcus, and Arcus is delivered to his granddad, his granddad Lycaon, by a goat herd. And Lycaon is like, what am I going to do with this baby? And also, why is my daughter a bear? I feel like this, there's a children's book, so your daughter's a bear now. <laughs> so your daughter's a werebear. <laughs> it's a pamphlet. Maybe Lycaon is just mad at the person he should be mad at, which is Zeus, for raping his daughter and getting her turned into a bear and getting her pregnant. So Hesiod tells us that, quote, after Zeus had seduced Callisto, i.e. raped Callisto, her father Lycaon, pretending not to know of the matter, entertained Zeus, as Hesiod says, and set before him on the table the babe, which he had cut up. Of course he did! And that babe is Arcus, just so we're, we're, nobody is in, in confusion here. It is Zeus's son. It won't be the last. People just cutting up their babies to serve them up for stew meat. Seems to be a theme. So Lycaon decided to get his revenge on Zeus by serving him his own son as a course of baby stew. <laughs> Why else would you have a god over if you're not going to serve them their own child in some kind of a meat dish? I mean, again, Zeus should know about this. His own dad tried to eat him. So much baby eating in the family. <laughs> so much baby eating. You gotta wonder where this weird baby eating thing comes from in Greek mythology. I bet it comes from some real starvation in the past where people actually were roasting them babies over the fire because there's nothing else to eat. Okay, Jenny, you took it to the dark place. Getting back to the story, as you can imagine, this breaks the laws of Xenia, which would have enraged Zeus and did. It's disrespectful to try to make your guest eat a stew from his own newborn son. Baseline. We shouldn't have to say this to people, but apparently we have to say this to people. Pseudo Apollodorus tells the story with a different twist. It goes like this. Quote, so these uh, people, the Arcadians, Lycaon's people, exceeded all men in pride and impiety, and Zeus, desirous of putting their impiety to the proof, came to them in the likeness of a day laborer. And the Arcadians offered him hospitality, and having slaughtered a male child of the natives, they mixed his bowels with the sacrifices and set them before him at the instigation of the elder brother Minolos. But Zeus, in disgust, upset the table at the place which is still called Terpizos, which means table and Zeus, or Zeus's table, and blasted Lycaon and his sons by thunderbolts, all but Nictimus, the youngest, for Gaia the earth was quick enough to lay hold of the right hand of Zeus and so appease his wrath. But when Nictimus succeeded to the kingdom, there occurred the flood in the age of Deucalion. Some said that it was occasioned by the impiety of Lycaon's sons. Isn't that cool? I knew you'd love that. Well, yeah, this is just blaming... Yeah, Lycaon for the Bronze Age collapse here. <laughs> yeah, so we once again get the Bronze Age collapse and we get this sort of like Great Flood story going back to Lycaon's sons. So because Jenny and I really love a good werewolf transformation scene, I couldn't resist going to my Latin source, my man Ovid, and sharing this scene with you. This scene is from Fuck Daddy Zeus's point of view, and he is telling you why he did what he did. He's justifying his wrath. So, quote, I stopped in that Arcadian tyrant's realms and entered his inhospitable home. And when I showed his people that a god had come, the lowly prayed and worshipped me. 
but this Lycaon mocked their pious vows, and scoffing said, A fair experiment will prove the truth if this be God or man. And he prepared to slay me in the night, to end my slumbers in the sleep of death. So made he merry with his impious proof. But not content with this, he cut the throat of a Molossian hostage sent to him, and partially softened his still quivering limbs in boiling water, partially roasted them on fires that burned beneath. And when his flesh was served to me on tables, I destroyed his dwelling and his worthless household gods with thunderbolts avenging. Terror-struck he took flight, and on the silent plains is howling in his vain attempts to speak. He raves and rages, and his greedy jaws, desiring their accustomed slaughter, turn against the sheep, still eager for their blood. His vesture separates in shaggy hair. His arms are changed to legs, and as a wolf, he has the same gray locks, the same hard face, the same bright eyes, the same ferocious look. Thus fell one house, but not one house alone deserved to perish. Over all the earth ferocious deeds prevail. All men conspire in evil. Let them therefore feel the weight of dreadful penalties so justly earned, for such hath my unchanging will ordained. Ooh. So let's break down what just happened here. Lycaon and the Arcadians are accused of being impious. So Zeus goes to visit them in the disguise of a day laborer. What else? He loves his disguises and tests their hospitality, their xenia. And what does Lycaon do? He fe- feeds him this Melosian hostage. According to Ovid, who is a Roman, writing much later, it's this hostage. It's this random per- It's this random guy they killed. He was a hostage. They shouldn't have killed him. Like, that definitely breaks xenia, right? But according to Hesiod, and according to the more Greek sources, it would have been Zeus's own son that was killed. And... Lycaon kind of has a bone to pick with Zeus if you believe that he cared about his daughter Callisto, who was turned into a bear because Zeus seduced her in the form of Artemis. A werebear. Let's be clear. A werebear with a werebear stare. So anyway, how does Zeus react to all of this bullshit? All of this baby eating and hostage eating and the human meats and the cannibalism? Just the whole breaking of Xenia and feeding human flesh on the table. He blasted Lycaon with his thunderbolt, and he turned him into a wolf. Oh! Where are wolves of Arcadia? Shout out to Wolf Mountain. (laughs) The name Lycaon means wolf in Greek. So Zeus kills all of Lycaon's 50 sons, except for that one guy that Gaia decides to intervene on the behalf of. And while it's not mentioned in this passage, he brings his son Arcus back to life. And if you're going with the version where it's his son Arcus being served to him in the bowl... He brings his son Arcus back to life and gives him back to the goat herds to raise because goat herds, they have nothing else to do but raise your children. So what do you think, Jenny? Is this going to pass your werewolf story muster? Does it have our key werewolf elements? Is the law of Xenia broken? Is there some like cannibalism? Does someone, anyone turn into a wolf? Let's discuss. Okay, so my verdict on this is that yes, this is in fact a werewolf story. There's cannibalism. There's meal sharing, although notably not with a werewolf. However, there is breaking of hospitality laws of Xenia and pissing off of Zeus. And someone physically does actually get turned into a wolf. So. Oh! Oh! 
When I went into the research for this episode, I really thought I knew what I'd be writing about, but I was so surprised by what I found on this topic. Mostly, I was surprised by how well this topic fit into our season. Werewolves, it turns out, have a role in creating chaos in the patriarchy and giving women sexual agency via sex magic. They also had a lot to do with taboos around eating babies and disrespecting Xenia. Apparently, the ancient Greeks had a lot of anxiety that they were going to be served the human baby meat at their next meal. But you know, Jenny, it's the sex magic and the agency that I choose to take away from this episode. And I hope the next time you're walking by a graveyard at night and you see a melancholic werewolf or a werewitch harvesting her herbs, or you hear the call of Hecate's pack of wolves and dogs, you remember these stories. And maybe pass on having a pint with a werewolf. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter at Ancient Histfan and on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. Check us out at ancienthistoryfangirl.com where you can find a link to our Patreon where you can join to um, get extra episodes, ad-free episodes, all kinds of cool stuff. We now are doing six episodes a month. If you become a patron at the $5 level, you will get five episodes from us a month. That is so many episodes. And you'll get six if you join at the $10 level or we have $25 and $50 levels if you're feeling extremely generous and we deeply appreciate those who do feel that generous we love you guys we love you at the two dollar level we have a library of older episodes that you can listen to from last year that are all extra and bonus yeah we have about like 18 or 19 bonus episodes for uh, people at the two dollar level to listen to and then you get ongoing ad-free episodes after that we've got some patrons to thank don't we jen Blanket statement, we are going to mispronounce some names. We apologize. Thank you to Rachel Cameron Cook. Jorf Shorat. Amy McFarland. Crystal Carroll. Juliana Baker. Chris Schilliner. Courtney Smotherman. Karen Robertson. Joy, just Joy. Ashley Kate. Inglorious Bustard. (laughs) Emma Griffith. And Charlotte Wallace. Thank you so much for your support. We could not do this episode or this whole podcast without you. We couldn't. So that's it for this week and for this year's spooky season. Oh, my God. Oh, you love it. You love how corny I am about this stuff. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Bye. Bye.